Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Matthew. Uh, and, and on the screen, it's going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. But actually, as I was looking over the passage and as I was preparing the sermon, I realized we need to back up just a couple verses. So the first two verses from Matthew chapter 3, you're not going to see on the screen, but you're really smart people. You can hang with this. I am quite sure of it. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, then go to Matthew chapter 4. Hear this word from the Lord. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, so here's a couple things you need to know about me. I have never been baptized in the Jordan River. I can't quite identify with this experience. Never been baptized in the Jordan River. I have never had the clouds part above my head in any worship service I've ever been a part of. I've never had a theophany, that is, a physical manifestation of God, come down out of the heavens and rest on my head. And I've never heard the voice of God thundering from above in front of a big, loud crowd telling them, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. None of that has ever happened to me. But if it did, I do not believe that the next thing that I would do would be to walk into the desert to not eat for 40 days. There are multiple reasons that that's just not really in my wheelhouse. First is just the idea of going alone and not eating for 40 days. That's just not going to happen. whenever Jennifer is out of town, she's going to be out of town this next week and she's running her first marathon. And whenever she is, there comes a moment when uh, the kids are all asleep and it's just me awake in the house. It's like nine o'clock at night. And I have that option of like, I could go to sleep early 
and get a good start on the next day. Or maybe I could go into my task list and cross off the last few things that are undone for the day. Or I could make myself a late night snack of uh, the, uh, the, maybe the roasted potatoes that are in the fridge and then maybe just a little bit of the kids leftover Halloween candy. And uh, then maybe just a little bit of lasagna from last week. Like I turned into an absolute trash person at nine o'clock when left to my own devices. The idea that I would be alone for 40 days without eating to distract myself is absolutely absurd. But leave that alone for a moment. There's another reason why this just doesn't make sense to me. It's bad marketing on Jesus' part. I mean, this is his moment. He had a crowd. He had people gathered. He had the voice of God coming from heaven and saying, this is the one. And the obvious move at this point is to capitalize on going viral. The obvious moment is, or move is to turn to the crowd and say, who's in, and launch your movement that way. But instead, with the crowd gathered and the voice of heaven still ringing in their ears, Jesus walks away into the wilderness which makes no sense. Because in the Bible, you only go to the wilderness if you are being chased. Hagar, slave girl of Abraham and Sarah, ran into the wilderness of Paran when they exiled her from their home. People of Israel went into the Sinai wilderness when they were on the run as fugitives from the chariots of Pharaoh. Elijah went into the wilderness when he had a death sentence on his head from Jezebel, the queen. Jesus, Jesus is choosing to go into the wilderness, which is no place to start a revolution. It's a place where people run away. To understand why, maybe you you need to understand uh, that you wouldn't want to go into the wilderness for any possible reason of your own volition in the biblical times. To help to understand that why, understand why you need to understand the wilderness that Jesus was in is a little bit different from what we think of as wilderness here. I grew up in the American South, like most of you here. When I think wilderness, I think woods. I think pine trees and oaks. I think places that are full of life and places that we go to to just enjoy peace and quiet, places that are beautiful and, and full of all sorts of resources that we live off of. That's not how it was in Jesus' wilderness. In the wilderness of Judea, you need to understand that wilderness means desert. And that makes a lot of differences because I didn't realize it uh, when I was growing up, but the, our wildernesses are a great place to hide. The woods are full of shadows and uh, you have all these kinds of layers of different uh, vegetation and all these places to hide when you're in the woods, uh, a bobcat or a snake or, or whatever can sneak up on you before you even know it's there. But I'll never forget being 15 years old and making my first trip to the badlands of South Dakota, which is a very different landscape than our wildernesses down here. It's much closer to a desert, and everything there is very stark, and there is nowhere to hide. There's no vegetation anywhere. There's no shadows or or overhanging trees or leaves or anything to hide behind everything. You can see for miles in the Badlands, and nothing is going to sneak up on you. When you see cliffs out in the distance, they stand out in stark relief. You know exactly what is there. The desert is a place of black and white, of hot and cold. It is a place of making sharp distinctions. Everything becomes very clear, and nothing is hidden or in shadow in the desert. Which is one of the reasons that for a very long time, Christians 
have understood the desert as a place that we should go when we want to see sin clearly. It's a place where we go to pull sin out of hiding because our sins, they like to be very subtle. They like to even be sophisticated. They like to wrap themselves up in all kinds of layers so we don't really know what's going on. They love to hide and sew together these leafy costumes that make it all very presentable. For instance, sin loves it when we've got the right opinion. Because being wrong is not a sin, but pride is. And we never are more in danger of pride, stubbornness, never more likely to be slow to listen than when we are sure we are right. Sin loves to do that kind of trick. Loves to hide like that and make things confusing. About 1,700 years ago, there were some followers of Jesus who wanted to be able to see things a little bit more clearly, and so they moved out into the desert around Alexandria, Egypt. This was in a time when uh, Christianity, for the first time, was the majority religion in their city of Alexandria. And now that it was cool, they wanted to make sure they were in it for the right reasons. These folks are called the Desert Fathers and Mothers, and they were the original hipsters, right? They didn't, they didn't want to be phonies. They didn't want to be fake Christians. They didn't want to be Christians because it was popular. They wanted to know it was real. So they moved out into the desert to do what they called battle with the devil. And the Desert Fathers and Mothers left us all kinds of sayings. One of them, a guy named John Cassian, said, it is a bigger miracle to eject a passion from your own body than it is to eject an evil spirit from another's body. It's a bigger miracle to be patient and refrain from anger than it is to control the demons that fly through the air. Another of these radicals was a guy named Clement, and he said a word that I came across years ago, and it changed entirely how I think about the idea of temptation. He said, if you are not tempted, you have no hope. If you are not tempted, it is because you are sinning. The one who is sinning in his flesh has no trouble from temptation. If you are not tempted, you have no hope. If you are not tempted, it is because you are sinning. Oof. (laughs) What if that's true, though? I wonder if you're uh, struggling with anger lately, like really fighting it in a way you've never had to before. You used to be so calm and peaceful, and now you are feeling tempted to react in ways that you never did before. Maybe it wasn't real peace that you knew before. Maybe it was comfort and security. Maybe you were just comfortable, and you weren't really ready to face your anger until now. But now that you have a good reason to let your anger loose, now... Now you're really being asked, can you surrender it to God instead? Can you be loving, not just when things are going well, but when everything that is inside of you is calling you to rage? If you weren't tempted, you'd have no hope. If you didn't feel the tug, the pain of it, you wouldn't have really conquered it. Maybe you're struggling with motivation. Maybe you used to be so passionate up for anything, just never needed, needed that encouragement before. Maybe you're realizing now that the reason for that is that so much of your drive came from getting the approval of others. 
And now you're in a situation where you're being called to be faithful even though God is gonna be the only one who sees it. And for the first time, it's kind of hard to get up for that. It's kind of hard to move for that. You've never been tempted by sloth before, by apathy, but now you are because you're being invited to do something only for God. You see, when Jesus went into the wilderness, he wasn't running away from anything. But instead, he was going to meet face-to-face the temptations that so many of us would rather pretend aren't even in our lives, the ones we would pacify and make dull so that we fall into them without even noticing. He didn't want to see it hidden. He didn't want to see it in the shadows. He wanted to see it in stark relief, to know exactly what it is that we are up against. Jesus went in there to face sin head on. He went to fight the real enemy. He went to go toe-to-toe with and launched the revolution that would end at the cross. And when we talk about the days that Jesus spent in the desert, what we're talking about are his Lexington and Concord. You know the story, right? You remember from your elementary school days, the patriots in the U.S. had announced that there's a new kingdom in this world, a new, a new nation, the United States of America. And everyone thought that was real cute, real sweet, real nice that didn't stand a chance against the power of the British army and navy and king. Until the day that Paul Revere and the Minutemen prepared themselves for the British forces and they gathered all their power on the North Bridge and they fired that shot heard round the world and it was the moment that the world had to take notice that there was a new power on the scene and that maybe the old powers couldn't throw themselves around quite like they used to. In Jesus' day, there were many of his countrymen who were looking for a new power, somebody who could throw off the power of Rome, who could set the nation of Israel free. And Jesus came to start a revolution, but he chose to launch it in the desert so that he could say that he was there to take on an even greater power than Rome. A power that had been too comfortable for too long. A power that was just so assumed we didn't even notice it. Jesus goes into the desert to put up the first real fight that humanity had ever shown against the power of sin in the world. And the wilderness is where Jesus looked at the very best things that Satan has to offer, and he said, I know something even better. This is where he fired the first shot in the war against the sin that would rule us. And when Jesus battled sin in the wilderness, There were three specific temptations that he faced, three very subtle temptations, the sorts that we don't even think of as temptation. We are often so enslaved to them. There were three ordinary and yet so powerful sins against which Jesus was fighting and which he fought to begin and win the beginning of this revolution. The author Henry Nouwen identified these three temptations in his book, In the Name of Jesus, which a friend of mine has said is the only book about Christian leadership that has ever really mattered. If you ever get a chance to read it, you should. The three temptations that Jesus faced that Henry Nouwen identified, my prayer is that this morning we can see all three of these temptations clearly and we can conquer them in his name. The first temptation that Jesus faced was the temptation Nouwen says to be relevant to turn stones into bread. I expect this is a particularly strong temptation for us at Dauphin Way, because we have it right there on the wall. Uh, We are disciples, we are making disciples who make a difference. 
We are proud to be a people who feed the hungry, who take care of each other in crisis, who help lonely people find community. We love to talk about the difference that we make. We do so much in this church that if we are not careful, we might allow all these great accomplishments to cover up a deep current of fear. A fear that if we are not useful, we aren't really that important. And if we aren't important, then we are not loved. If you have to be useful to matter, then what kind of hope can we give to people who feel useless? What kind of sanctuary can we give to people whose to-do lists are already too long? That's what makes the temptation to relevance so insidious. How can we ever rest when there is so much to be done if our worth comes from what we do to make a difference rather than the trust of the God who makes all the difference? When Jesus himself was asked to prove that he was the son of God by turning stones into bread, which would have been really helpful, not just for him, but for the general well-being of the world, he refused. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The wilderness is the place where we remember why we are here. That everything else is not what gives us worth. It is just the joyful consequence of knowing God. There's a second temptation besides the temptation to relevance that Henry Nouwen identified. He says that Jesus was tempted, as we all are, by the temptation to be spectacular. That is to do something that's going to win great applause. It's the temptation to throw himself from the temple with a crowd looking on so that they'll be amazed and astonished. I've never seen that before. It's the same temptation that's behind our desire to be popular, to be beloved, to be larger than life. It's the temptation that drives someone to start a YouTube channel or try and become a social media star. It's the temptation to be somebody's hero. It's also the temptation that every parent knows. Temptation to raise our kids in such a way that they trust us even more than they trust themselves. We always want to be their hero. Maybe even more so than God himself. We want them to trust us in everything. We want to be the ones who make it right. Kids, if you do not know this, um, your parents would love to be everything for you. And it kills us when we can't be. And that same temptation can kill the church too. We can come to measure our worth by the spectacle, by the size of our budgets or our buildings or our crowds or by the marvels of the talents we can put on display. And we say that that's what's gonna be really important. We wanna wow people to Jesus because we've lost patience with wooing them. Jesus faced that temptation to be spectacular and when we give in to that temptation, we quickly become dishonest because we have a very hard time confessing that we really aren't the hero of the story, that it's not about us. When everything has to be spectacular, when everything has to be the biggest, the best, the most amazing, then we don't really build in time or space for confession, for someone to show up and say, you know what? I just botched it this week. I really really messed up. And if we have no time or place for that kind of confession, then we don't have any place for forgiveness either. 
And we miss what God is all about. There's a third temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness that Henry now named. It's the temptation to be powerful, to be in control. Whether or not it's useful, whether or not it makes us popular, sometimes all that we want out of life is to get what we want. Doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be grand, just as long as we get it. We are so afraid of being controlled that we want to be in control. And that's what the devil was offering Jesus from the mountaintop. That's the worldly definition of what it means to be king. It means that you are totally in charge, totally in control. That was the final temptation of the wilderness, to bend all the nations of the world to Jesus' will, for him to be totally in control. It's the temptation that Jesus rejected on the mountaintop, and it's the last one he would face as well, as he sat in the garden of the Gethsemane and finally said, not my will, but yours. The temptation to be powerful, To be in control can be so subtle, so hard to see that it doesn't even feel like temptation. It's just doing what comes naturally. We don't usually realize we're trying to control the world until we discover that we cannot. Now and explained what makes power so tempting in this way. He said, power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. And in the end, power is when we try to change others without allowing ourselves to be changed by them. But love always changes. It always changes us as well as those we love. I've been changed by my marriage, been changed by my kids. I've been changed by my friends who I've seen through hard and good times and who've seen me through the same. I've been changed by every church I've ever served. I hope I've effected some change for the better with them too. As the old hymn says, that's what it means to love is to be changed from glory into glory again and again, continually changed until in heaven we take our place. And in the Bible, in good times and in bad, that is always what the wilderness represents. The wilderness is the place of transformation. No one in the scriptures enters into the wilderness and walks out unchanged. Hagar entered into the wilderness as a slave girl and she became the mother of nations. The Israelites entered the wilderness as fugitives and they left it as a chosen people of God. And even Jesus, even the word made flesh was changed in the wilderness. He walked out of the desert knowing the full measure of our temptations, knowing exactly what we are up against. He even knew our neediness because, did you catch that at the end? In the desert, for the first time ever, God was in need. God needed the ministry of the angels. Hear it again. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. How do we map our minds around that? That God needed something. That God needed comfort. The desert changed even Jesus. 
And he found in that desert the comfort he was looking for. And it turns out that the desert, the wilderness, is the perfect place to start a revolution if the revolution you're going for is a change in the very human heart. And if you're in the wilderness right now, if you're struggling with temptations to prove your worth, to be the hero of your story, to take control of everything, if you feel as though you're fighting these temptations every single day, then hear the good news. If you were not tempted, you would have no hope. But recognizing the temptations, feeling them, seeing them for what they are is the first step in breaking their power over you. It's not how I would have started a revolution. It's not how I would have made myself king. But thanks be to God, I am not the king. And because we serve a king who is unlike any other, and whose power is both greater and different than any other power in this world, we can know that even the wilderness is nothing for us to fear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.